you need the scientists and you need the business guys together. And, and they both bring different things to the table. At times, it feels like business and academia live in completely separate worlds. Sure, we might see the value of executives and scientists working with and learning from each other, but it does not happen enough. Today, we try to bridge this gap by speaking to an academic who has his foot in both worlds. You're listening to This Much I Know, the Seedcamp podcast. There we go. We're now live. We are now live. Welcome, everyone. On this podcast today, we have Professor Luke O'Neill. And I'm super excited to, to, to welcome you, Professor, to this podcast because not only is it going to be about science and some areas that we've never covered on this podcast before, but also because it is such a huge topic that we're going to cover everything about where we are, where we're going to go, and the future of humanity is at stake here. So no, no pressure. A little bit about the professor. Um, first of all, he's he's got an amazing TED talk if you haven't seen it. it. It's called The Biggest Riddle of Them All, What is Life? And that's kind of a little bit of, I got some insights about Professor O'Neill. But he was educated at Trinity College um, where he was awarded an undergrad degree in natural sciences in 1985 in biochemistry. He completed his postgraduate study at the University of London where he was awarded a PhD in pharmacology. And following his PhD, he was a postdoctoral researcher at the Strangeways Research Laboratory in Cambridge, funded by the Medical Research Council. He's also the author of one of the best titled books I've seen in science, Never Mind the Bullocks, Here's the Science, which of course we'll cover briefly in this podcast. So welcome, Professor. Thank you very much, Carlos. Very happy to take part. And you mispronounced the word, it's bollocks. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, yes. I, I really struggle with that word. Rude word in some circles. But in Ireland, we use, don't we, we use these words all the time. Right, there. Nothing time. to worry about here. <laughs> <laughs> and, and for the listeners and watchers of this podcast, you might notice that we have another guest, David Ola. And David Ola is one of our newest team members, and I will be introducing him a little later in the podcast. But back to you, Professor. First of all, one of the interesting things about anyone who's accomplished as much as you have is why they started down this path. And it's usually some really cool story about how they were inspired as young uh, as a young person. Maybe you can tell us yours. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I realized in my teens, I didn't want a regular job. Let's start with that. <laughs> you know, I didn't fancy like, you know, routine things at all for some reason. And I vividly remember when I was maybe 16 years of age, hearing about a thing called DNA in my biology class. And, I, and I'm, not, I'm not making this up. It sounds like a standard story, but our teacher in school really got me interested in DNA. And once I heard about this double helix and the wonder of life itself, it kind of the bug began to bite, I guess, you know. And then beyond that, then I realized, look, if I became a scientist, I might make a discovery. Imagine discovering something that nobody's seen before. I thought, what a cool thing to do. So uh, that was in my mind. And then I was relentlessly, I was going to do medicine actually initially, to be honest. And then I could have gone into medical school, but I just said, nah, I'd rather be a scientist. So, so I ended up going down the science road. Well, it's funny. I almost thought I wanted to go to med school as well. And I did an internship in, uh, in the Red Cross for, for a little bit. And the idea of all the pain that you have to sometimes help people go through, I, I just couldn't handle it. So I, I definitely can relate to that. So, you know, you've had a long career and actually it's very hard to try to, to summarize that very quickly, obviously, for the purposes of, of this interview. But one of the cool things is the summary of all that research into this book that you uh, recently published, 
And you cover some really big questions. And I wanted to, first of all, ask you, you know, the genesis of the book. I mean, you know, most people come up with with a reason why they've written books. I, I wrote a book about fundraising about five years ago, mostly because I was getting asked the same questions over and over again. I just want to understand why why you wrote yours, and then we'll cover some of the, the questions you address in it. Sure. So I guess it's pretty simple. I was asked to write it. That's the first thing. So a publisher approached me. Uh, I have a radio slot on Irish radio once a week. It's gone to twice a week now because of COVID, actually. But I've, I've, for a number of years, I've been on this radio show, little science slot every week. And uh, it was went down well. And this publisher, Gil, said, how about writing a book based on your radio slot? So I wrote my first book. It was called Humanology. And then that sold quite well. And then I quite enjoyed writing it. Uh, do another one, you know. And then the second book is all about the big questions that we face in life, I suppose. And because I'm a scientist, I really believe in using science to help us. The great thing about science is it can help us in our lives and how science informs these big questions. And I figured now more than ever, we need science. And I wrote the book pre-COVID, by the way. Uh, yeah. I got the proofs just when COVID was breaking. Uh, COVIDized it. I've got lots of references to COVID in the book, but it wasn't written with COVID in mind. So the, but the inspiration was sort of to, to allow to reveal, I suppose, how great science is as a way to approach big questions, I guess. Mm. And some of the big questions, I'm just going to read some out for you that you cover in the book. It's, do we do we have control over our lives? Can we escape working in bullshit jobs? Must we vaccinate our children? I love that one in particular. Are, we, are men and women's brains different? And will we destroy the planet? And some of these are, are scientific. Some of them are existential, you know, kind of like, can we escape working in bullshit jobs? And it's almost like there's a range there between like philosophical and, and sort of uh, factual. How, how did you manage to, to sort of deal with that breadth? Like that's a, that's a massive yeah. undertaking. I guess each chapter, I'm really interested in each topic myself. I've read lots of better over the years, you know, and I realized, oh, I could build a chapter around that topic. And of course, they are big questions like vaccines, as you've said, because it's a big one climate change they're the two obvious ones that stand out but the bullshit jobs one it's always intrigued me why people do the job they do you know <laughs> and then how society has organized itself based on the work environment and so on in fact that chapter i wrote a fair bit about remote working and this is pre-covid remember that was happening already you know? so i guess that e each of the chapters were things that intrigued me i guess and i knew a little bit about i suppose so like, i had done my research already kind of thing and then talking to friends and people, I said, would you find this interesting? And they asked, oh yeah, that's cool. Yeah, the, the men, women one is interesting. The, the actual title of that is, why do you still think men are from Mars and women are from Venus? You know, because so, our, our opinion has changed on that over the years, I guess. So I guess the, the bottom line for the book was things that were intriguing to me. And then secondly, you're right, some of them are less scientific and more yeah, philosophical maybe, but we're all asking ourselves these questions, aren't we? Because mm. I suspect my mental age never went above 18, probably, you know? Mm. And I was like, mm. why am I here? Like I mentioned Nietzsche a lot, for instance, the teenager mm. friend, you know, so so that was, that was part of the motivation. And of course, the great thrill, because I can list my heroes, good. No, you know, mm. each, each chapter had a bit of popular culture there. Like I'm a massive fan of the Beatles for instance, And so I have a chapter on drugs, you know? So I was mm. able to build a, a Bill Hicks, another one of my heroes, you know? So I could build all that stuff into it as well, I guess. So, you know, on, on the book side of things, um, I think you probably know of, a, of, of another author, Professor uh, Jordan Peterson, who wrote this book, 12 Rules for Life, about a year ago or two years ago, you know, bestseller at the time. And one of the chapters I think stood out as like the most obvious and yet the most simple solution to a lot of people's problems. And keep in mind, he wrote it from a point of view of like improving people's lives. Um, it was around just make your bedroom, like make your bed. And the, the whole thesis was like you start with something small and then it escalates right 
And if I were to ask you the same question, but in a slightly different sense, in a scientific sense, and I were to say to you, like, what's the one obvious thing that we as humanity should do scientifically that is so damn obvious when you hear it, and yet would have the biggest momentum buildup to actually solving all of our problems? What would it be? I was going to say brush your teeth, but that's probably too obvious. <laughs> that's a tough question. I think, um, I guess the essence of the book, in a sense, is using your reason, you know. In other words, if we're just more reasonable, we'll get a lot further down the track. Let's put it that way, you know. And that's what science really is about, actually. It's about using data and using information and having a reasonable response. So, for example, if you read something in the media or on social media, take a step back and think, does this make sense? You know, is this a reasonable thing? And try to be reasonable about things and, and certainly lean towards the liberal, shall we say. Cut the other guy a bit of slack. There, there, there's a mm. rule of thumb for you because mm. cut all the other guys slack. better if we cut each other because life is hard for everybody, you know. So don't don't be nasty. That kind of yeah. thing. As well. But but science science can inform this because and let's talk about the guy Tony Fauci. He seems to be the most famous scientist on the planet. All he says is follow the data. That's all he says really, you know. So that'd be my key piece of advice: follow the data, and you won't go far wrong. Follow the data and be reasonable about other people's opinions, but. Therein lies another question, if I, if I may, um, on, on, on your book still. I think one of the challenges that we have in modern day society is this emergence of sort of this postmodern thinking, you know, this sort of like quasi, um, I mean, this is the reason why fake news can spread so quickly. How do you, how do you, how, how do you think as a society we can battle this temptation to go for the easy wrong and remain reasonable? How do we not fall victim to this sort of easy oh. reasoning? The, the one lesson that we all know at this stage is we're, we're living in bodies and brains that evolved 200,000 years ago, remember, you know, so yeah. we're inclined to have an instinctive response, which is often the wrong response. You know, things frighten us. We're inclined to be biased about certain things. We certainly, um, you know, support our biases by s selectively looking at information coming at us. And it's really difficult. It's like you, you want to go down to a fast food joint, stuff your face full of bad food. That's an evolved trait, remember? <laughs> because on, 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 the, on the Serengeti, you stuffed your face full of antelope if you caught one, this kind of thing. So I think the, the story of human history actually is trying to defy these instinctive responses you see. So, And then we've got to keep confronting that. And the way you confront it is through enlightenment. That, let's put it that way, you know, and, and using our reason and using scientific knowledge to defy what would be a natural response. And that might be the wrong response. So that, that's one quick philosophical answer to the question. I think, you know, the, the reason why science is so powerful, it gives us comfort. In other mm -hmm. words, I know vaccines work. I can show you all the evidence. And I'm comforted by that scientific fact that vaccines are safe and that hopefully that they will be safe and that they will work. And if you're anxious about these things, follow the data, follow the science. Mm. No, it's, it's, it's fair. And I think that maybe you summarized it well with, with this temptation that we have as humanity to go for the easy uh, rather than the hard, um, which is effectively the way that enlightenment, uh, the enlightenment trajectory followed. And maybe that's a great segue to the next section of, 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 of our chat where I want to frame you as an investor. You know, we were talking about this offline. One of the challenges investors have is falling into groupthink, you know, falling into that sort of the easy wrong, because that's kind of what everybody's thinking, right? You would look at, I, I look back at 1920s popular science magazines, and they're hilarious, because they got some things really right, and some things really wrong. Yeah. One of the things that they got really right was this idea of like, a video call, right? They had like a old TV with a phone and then you could TV. So they got FaceTime right. But the funny thing was they had these flying vehicles, which were fine, like we do have them now, but everyone, including the women were wearing Victorian garb. 
So the idea that our clothing were not going to evolve at the same time that this technology was like, it was just like this warped sense of like generals yeah. and, and clothing roles. And so we, we get a lot of these things wrong and investors generally would have backed the wrong thing back then. And so now I'm going to put you in the, in the hot, uh, hot suit of, of an investor. So as an investor armed with now 5 million, and I chose that number very carefully because I don't want it to be yep. so big that it's daunting, but so small that it's useless. Um, which are the three areas you'd find startups to back right now and why? Oh, there's a great question. Five million is not enough. That's the first problem, as you know. So you, you won't get very far. Intentionally make, that size. If you want to make a big impact, uh, you won't get very, sadly. When I tell lay people that these millions aren't that much, they kind of go, what the hell are you talking about? You know, so, which you're asking me which areas would, would, would we see coming down mm -hmm. the pike? Well, obviously, medical advances clearly there's a massive you, you look where the biggest need is i think that's the you start with that so so the mm. biggest need by far would be in new medicines which is my own area of course so many diseases still cannot be treated massive unmet need massive market potential let's start with that and then the question becomes how do you find you know the right thing to invest in and then you look at the people it's obvious in a way don't we? we all know this in spades the idea is one thing it's the nature of the person you're dealing with and the interpersonal part of investment in my opinion in all our lives is so central you see so so which part of medical research would you invest in i would then look look look, look at the people that are presenting what their ideas might be certainly um it's obvious again we're looking at ai the interface aren't we with living systems these are obvious things there's nothing nothing innovative here there's so many ideas out there though the question was which one do you choose you know which one do you think is going to go furthest i guess and as an immunologist invest in the immune system that's the first clue i would give you because we will find treatments for all these diseases through the immune system it's happening already cancer the big breakthroughs in immuno oncology as you know my own businesses is anti-inflammatories for the big disease like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. So use the immune system to go after these diseases. The second area to look at is definitely the brain. No doubt about that at all. We're so far behind in our knowledge of the, 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 how the neurological systems operate. Like we need new treatments for schizophrenia, psychosis, depression, all the big ones. Still, you'd be looking for innovative ideas there. That would be surely coming down the track. It's very challenging. And then related to that this is off the off the cuff now Carlos. i'm just giving you this randomly some of this could be wrong has to be medical devices that are that are interfacing with the human no question and we're talking transhumanism in a sense there the future has to be uh soft electronics sensing things and then relaying information to something else and then using that to make a therapeutic input that kind of thing so that interface is the, is the big one i would be looking at closely yeah and you and you create like a world of five, six, seven different questions I want to ask you on the tail end of that. But staying strict to the theme, yeah. which areas do you think investors at the moment, from what you hear, are overfunding? And, and overfunding means they've now put so much money into that one of two negative outcomes can happen. Either one, there's massive disappointment from the point of view of the customer. Think Theranos. Um, and two, there is a regulatory clampdown because of negative consequences that sets the whole industry back 10 years. Yep. What areas yep. would you say investors at the moment are, are overfunding? Well, investors, as you well know, Carlos, I mean, me having helped venture capital funds of various kinds over the years, they do hunt in packs, remember, and they all go after the same thing and they kind of nuance it slightly. And, but in fact, they're, they're, they're risk averse at one level, I've found, because they all, you know, to try something really innovative is too risky, I suppose, you know. And areas that are overdone, well, now let me think for a minute. 
I think the whole microbiome business has been overhyped for a long time. Now, there are some companies that do a good job there and they're kind of looking at sub parts of that that could be interesting. It's not as if they're all terrible. But that, that an awful lot of money went into that. I think that was wasted in a sense because it's far too complicated. It was too early, maybe, you know. Of course, one example where there was years of money lost was gene therapy. But that's now delivering, as we all know. That suddenly got better. They all back CRISPR in spades. I'm waiting for the killer app there to be really proven. You know, it may come. I don't know. Uh, the other big mistake that people made was investing in big data, especially in medical stuff. And that didn't yield either. Uh, the whole notion of uh, genetics and gene. And, and, and our, our, the, the next one I'm going to speak to will know all about this being a human genetist. I mean, that was massively overhyped and didn't get anywhere, largely. In, in my humble opinion, uh, the DNA bit, which turned me on at the very start, it's a great tool to use for discovery, but it didn't really directly give rise to new breakthroughs as such. You know, we've yet to realize the uh, potential of that for some mysterious reason, Carlos. It hasn't delivered, you know. Mm. So those genomics-based companies didn't really deliver. Antisense was a blowout, you know. It just takes time, though, mind you. If you start yeah. something, I mean, monoclonals were like that for years. They spent a long time on those, not getting anywhere, and then finally, what thirty years ago began to yield, you know. And now it's the biggest selling drug on record, you know. Those 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 biologics. So it does take a bit of patience, but I I don't know. That. I mean, it's hard to say if money's been wasted ultimately because something's always learned, you know. I yeah. Think as well, you always get a few things come out of this. The yeah, other thing no, that happens, Carlos, sure. in spades is. You know, people are duped by flashy, bright, shiny things and big machines that do things. And, and, and like Theranos would be a good example, actually, you know. And then investors get blinded for some reason. That's one to watch. Don't believe your own bullshit. You know? There you go. For sure. Now, there's one thing that you mentioned earlier, though, about and, and I, I'm, I'm caveat. I'm, I'm segueing it from the, the whole bullshit thing, because we have seen a weird uh, correlation between some innovation not coming from the traditional academic sources. And, you know, you look at SpaceX, you look at um, uh, Huel and and um, and Soylent in the U.S., and you look at some of the world's challenges, they're not done by the people who are doing the research. There's somebody who's like, you know, there's a problem. I have no idea how I'm going to solve this. I'm just going to go, right? And, you know, some of the things that, that um, you mentioned seem maybe a little bit too difficult for somebody to do that. But, what what is your view on how how you would expect non orthodox uh, innovation yeah. to come in the future? Is it just out of too far out of reach because it's so complicated, or do you think that there is a correlation between somebody being so unplugged that they actually don't know the, the actual problems? Yeah, that's a good question. I think what you need is a maverick. That that's the most important term I would use in this thing because you need someone who is definitely different to the rest. Let's put it that way. Now, they're often academics because they have to hide away somewhere. You know, they can't get a regular job. So they end up in a university or whatever. That's one possibility, right? You've got to, and, and again, it's, it, as you well know, Carlos, you're, you're trying to get, get, get a, the interpersonal thing in a sense, aren't you? You know, it's very hard to spot, isn't it? And, and, and it's rare, I suppose. But certainly too much knowledge is a bad thing. Let's put it that way. You know, you, you, and often academics get caught in the weeds, you know. And they spend years working on one single thing. And I call that noodling. You know, you want to avoid that for definitely. I think what, 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 what the thing to watch for here is a proof of concept getting in that, getting quick at that, you know. In other words, define what a proof of concept looks like and get there within a year or two. If it's dragging on, forget it, you know, is the thing that I would always use as a rule of thumb. And I'm, I think my own approach, I, I'm impatient in a sense. You know, I want to see progress. 
Otherwise, I begin to lose interest. Maybe ADHD is the key trait to have in people. <laughs> that's maybe that's that is. Sort of, you know, because one reason I became a scientist was new shit comes to light. To quote the Big Lebowski all the time, you know, it's great. You know, you're just new stuff, and I love that. You know, so that, that's the kind of approach you need. But then eventually, you got to deliver, though. You got to say, look, I've got an idea here. And I'm going to push it and I'm going to try to come up with a way to test that idea fully, you know, and then you might actually get somewhere. But you do you do need to be, you know, like the example, I, the best example I often give is um, stomach ulcers, you know. And this guy, Barry Marshall, was pressing helicobacter and nobody believed him. They thought that ulcers were a middle aged guy. He couldn't meet his sales targets. He was drinking too many martinis and he got an ulcer. You know, it's not it's a bacteria in your gut that causes ulcers, you see. And Marshall drank it himself famously and gave himself an ulcer, you know, and he was able to treat that with antibiotics. Um, and the big advances often happen by that kind of strange, you know, maverick who's a bit loose and will take it, certainly wants to defy the regulations. Let's put it that way. Without, if, mm. if, if, you stick, if you stick to the rules, you're not going to get anywhere. That's the other thing you want to watch. Really. Mm. All right. So definitely somebody who doesn't stick with the rules, who's a maverick and has some elements of ADHD. Exactly. Okay. That Classic brings me to CEO. David. That brings me to introducing David Ola. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> what a great segue. <laughs> what a great segue. So uh, as I mentioned before, David is one of our newest team members at SeedCamp. Uh, excellent, excellent background, uh, which I am not going to spoil. I'm going to let him uh, share with you, but very relevant. And the surprise relationship between Professor O'Neill and David is that they uh, work together in the sense that Professor uh, taught him. David went to to the same school uh, where Professor is teaching. And, um, and, and that's how the connection came about. But with that, I'm gonna hand it over to you, David. And David's gonna not only walk through some of the elements of um, the, the questions that he has for, for Professor, but also his background. Yeah, so I have a, um, you know, kind of like an unorthodox background into startups, but um, I think start with my journey in Trinity, where I was studying human genetics, and actually, you know, one of my first lectures was with Professor O'Neill, so that's where that connection comes. But um, about two years into my studies at Trinity, me and a co-founder saw an issue that we really wanted to solve. You know, typical startup story. Saw an issue. We looked at the market, uh, this market being healthcare acquired infections. And we saw that was a huge issue and there weren't that many solutions on the market, if any at all, really, um, directly solving it. And we decided to um, research and we formulated a chemical, which when you add to disinfectant and you apply it to a surface, will give you a visual indication of the group of pathogens on that surface. Um, and, you know, one year of development down the line, you know, we did a lot of pitching competitions a lot of you know student startups do uh, we're very lucky to you know go to McKinsey Venture Academy for example and also to Internet Plus in China um, and then in 2019 we kind of went into stealth mode and really looked at the problem and really um, worked more on our solution hand in hand with um, a commercial third party and we were really lucky um, that you know we had an exit with that company then earlier on this year can't really go more into it um, as Carlos kind of you know alluded to the NDA there, but, um, you know, it was a great journey. Um, and, you know, I just want to ask a couple of questions, I mean, from, you know, founder's perspective. Um, I think the first one I really have is what was that trigger for you to take something that you'd been researching so much and turn into a commercial product? Sure. First of all, congratulations, Dave. Great, great. Your success story. One of our, <laughs> one of our alumni. I'm very proud of you. It must have been your Trinity education, wasn't it? <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> Um, in my own case, well, I, I did my PhD, as Carlos mentioned, was in pharmacology. So I was always in the drug discovery business, really, you know, 
um, inflammation, anti-inflammatories from the get-go, from my PhD on, really. And lots of my, my contemporaries would have gone into industry or would have gone into small startups. So I was very well aware of the whole business of biotech and, you know, all that kind of... I went down the academic route because my passion was teaching, partly. I got to teach you, for example. Um, <laughs> but it was always in the back of my mind. I got some IP going, you know. And then in... And I had, I, I had contracts with Big Pharma for a while, contract-based research with AstraZeneca, for example, one of my first contracts. Uh, but then I was approached actually by an entrepreneur, uh, a guy called Mark Heffernan, who had set up a couple of companies himself. He had a PhD in biochemistry, he's a good science background. And he said, I can form a company around your IP. And then we got a company called Opsona going, that was my first company. And that bombed, sadly, but you can't beat a bit of failure, as we all know, that didn't pan out in the end. But I learned a huge amount, you know, I really enjoyed it. Uh, the, I got to know investors. That whole side of it kind of really got me. I mean, what got me most of all was how clever these people were, actually. You're working with some of the brightest people around. That was great, you know. And then um, ideas began to percolate. And then finally, we got to uh, Implazome. And that was a, a lucky break at some level. But uh, but I knew, I mean, I knew the area inside out. Expertise is so important there, David, you know. And I knew the inflammatory world absolutely inside out. And we stumbled into an inhibitor of that pathway. And I knew that was immediately commercializable. And me and this guy, Matt Cooper, he's a very important figure. He became the CEO of the company. And so, you know, I kind of knew there was a big unmet need in these diseases. I knew it was a great target for my know-how. And then I find a molecule to block it. So it all kind of clicked into place based on that. Sort of yeah, thing. I can imagine. And, you know, I suppose for us, um, when we started a lot, because we weren't, you know, I'm not a PhD uh, student, you know, don't have my PhD. So there, was, I was quite limited in terms of like the type of funding we could go for. And I think, you know, there's a really interesting part that like, the government kind of plays in this, you know, in providing supports yeah. um, for, you know, science focused entrepreneurs, but also just for entrepreneurs in general. But in this case, um, for, you know, science focused entrepreneurs, do you think there's more or the government could do, or do you see like any, you know, sticking points along that path? process um in terms of like helping get you to market because you know i feel like a lot don't really have that business side when they're starting off yeah i think the government has a certain role to play but you gotta get away from the government remember i mean with Upsona, we did get a seed grant initially I think 30 grand or something came in you know that kind of amount we invested some of our own money not a huge amount to get it going so you do need a bit of money to get started i suppose but then you're you're, you're deliverable in the first year to raise money let's face it and then you haven't got too many options, VCs are the big options to go for. So you got to get to that pretty quick, I think, and get them on board. And then they've got hopefully connections and they can help the business grow. So, so that, 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 that route is really important. It shouldn't be the government uh, taking up all the, to the task here. That, that can't really work, mm -hmm. I suppose. You, you could get money off a bank. That never works. You got to pay it back. You know? <laughs> uh, the other option is angels, but that can be tricky as well, in my experience, for other kinds of reasons, you know. So, so I suppose the, the, the standard ecosystem is the government invests in basic research and that they're getting tax off companies, say big pharma. Some of that should go back into basic research and that's taxpayers' money because it's high risk, remember. Then you begin to get sort of other people involved in funding it and venture capital isn't, the risk is it's still there, of course it is, and they might step in next. So there is kind of a, a gradual progression from state backing into private backing 
I suppose my you know one of my final questions really um is with me when I we had this startup I really started to enjoy the business side as time went on really started to get a lot more involved in that during the progression of our company I was wondering for you did this you know latest venture really you know spark more of like the business interest in you and like can we expect to see that more of this from you in the future and my passion is discovery first and foremost you know I'm a scientist I am Captain Kirk on the Starship Enterprise. But of course, I work in medically relevant area. I'm not stupid. I realize this could be useful. And then you've got a couple of options. You commercialize through a license, maybe, or you form your own company. So it's a natural trajectory. I couldn't do it full time because it's very demanding. And as you know, the business side is, has all kinds of uh, demands in it. And I do find it, it's satisfying. Don't get me wrong. But I couldn't do it as a full time job, I have to say. <laughs> I do think it's an ecosystem, that word I've used maybe a few times now. You need the scientists and you need the business guys together. And they both bring different things to the table. They should overlap, though. It's great if the, the business guys have PhDs, for instance, or science degrees. That helps because now you can sort of talk the same language. Equally, the science guys should have a knowledge of the business to make pitches to investors, how to, how to describe the work to potential partners. That's a very important skill as well. So. So you need both. I've often said the most powerful people, maybe Carlos will disagree, but the most powerful have MBAs and PhDs, you know, <laughs> from Stanford, for example. Um, <laughs> but that's a deadly combination, if, if you know, because they, they've got both things going on there, really, you know. So it's, it's a very complicated thing. I mean, in, in my end of it, and, and you're, to, to you as well, David, to some extent, to discover a new medicine is a really difficult thing to do. It's probably the most difficult thing we can, we can do as a species. Forget climbing Everest. Forget making the iPhone. That was easy, you know. Uh, to make a new medicine is really difficult, you know, for all kinds of reasons. It's intensely complex scientifically. Uh, when you get to the clinic, there's all kinds of hurdles to jump there. Safety, off-target effects. Maybe your whole pathogenic mechanism is wrong. And then you got to bring in the business development people. you got to bring in the lawyers. They're always involved as well, you know, the patent attorneys. It's a huge ecosystem of people, you know. And so when you get a success, then it's, it's, it's quite rare. But of course, the payday, if you're an investor, is massive if you make it. So, so there's that, that's the, and, and for good reason, because like our investors in Implazom, they invested in us at risk. You know, they gave us 55 million. That could have been gone. You know, I mean, and, and they deserve a return on their investment. And then, by the way, getting back to the government idea, one of the investors in Fountain, one of our VCs, was the Irish government, <laughs> you see. So governments can invest in, in venture capital as well. And many governments do this, you see. So, so the taxpayer did get some money back in the end as well. To wrap things up, I'm going to ask you a few sort of fun questions uh, completely out there. One of them is, is uh, one that I love to ask people that have a very macro view as you do. And it's based upon how, as society, we look back and sometimes see things that we did and think, how did we let that happen? And an example of that was would be something like, um, you know, uh, exploitations of the the Aztecs and, and Mayan Indians with the conquistadors. We're like, oh man, you know, or wiping out the Aborigines, you know, in Australia. Yeah. And we look back and we're like, how did we let that happen, right? Now, if we fast forward fifty years in the future, and the caveat is from an from an immune point of view or from an inflammatory point of view, what is happening today? that we will look back on 50 years from the future and think from an inflammation point of view, how are we letting this happen? 
do you mean medically, Carlos, in a medical sense, or, or even in, in a societal, society? societal, like the the thing that our society is doing to us that is generating inflammation or generating yeah. issues immunologically that gotcha. 50 years from now we'll be like, how the hell did we let that happen? How did we create this crisis? Yeah. Well, no more than if I can plug my book yet again, I have a chapter, the bullshit jobs chapter is a good example, right? So it, it's a shock to think that 50% of people are working in bullshit jobs, right? <laughs> in other words, these jobs serve no function. I send you a memo, you send me one back. I have a Zoom call with you and you have a Zoom call with me and it goes on forever, you know? And this guy, David Graeber, he, he was my inspiration for that. I read his book called Bullshit Job. Now, the reason why that's damaging is if, 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 if a lot of our people on this earth are living under stressful situations, and I'm talking about mental health and psychological stress, that damages their immune system. There's no question. Most immunologists know this now in spades. And therefore, they're getting sick, right? So human health is tied into well-being in the workplace, tied into a sense of fulfillment. In that chapter, I talk about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. How could we have allowed centuries of enslavement? Now, it's a new kind of slavery now. The slaves now work for Google and Facebook, remember, if I can say that controversially. Uh, now, I'm sure they're good employers as well. I'm not being totally negative. But we're going to look back and go, what was society do we have there that we were all these people doing worthless jobs, you know, <laughs> that was damaging their immune systems and giving them health problems that was then costing the economy all kinds of money anyway. So I think, I think it's more a case of, Everybody has the potential to fulfill their, you know, their, their, their true dreams. And that sounds unlikely, but every citizen has a right to do that. And the fact that we've, we've enslaved people in different ways over the millennia and that we're still doing that, we look back and go, how did we let that happen? And, and this is where the notion of the universal basic in comes in. It's, 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 it's not trivial to solve this by any means. But I do think we'll look back on that in 50 years' time and wonder, how do we run society the way we do? Mm. Well, on that theme... What do you think will have to change in capitalism to prevent that and to prevent the overfishing and the overuse of natural resources that have finite amounts, but the stock market doesn't currently uh, factor in as part of ongoing revenue growth? It's very hard, isn't it, to answer that one? I think uh, Star Trek, remember, the invention of the replicator did away with money. Okay, So in other words, you could make anything with the replicator and it didn't cost anything because the materials were recycling so suddenly money disappears from society are we going to see a cashless society look what covid's telling us that i mean covid is i think what covid is doing actually is it's bringing the future to the present in many ways you see so so i think i think we're going to, we're going to the only way i can shift is if the economic model that we've based the 20th century on and the 21st century is proven to be worthless to us let's put it that way right and all at the moment all we're doing is printing money that seems to be working doesn't it you know so why don't we print loads of money, build loads of hospitals and schools and education, stop putting money into weapons because the fear isn't attacked from a foreign power. I'm sure we're going to look back and go, why do we spend billions on, on, on armies that, when there was never any real threat there? The threat came from a tiny virus that we didn't see coming. You know, that took 100 trillion off the world economy. You know? not, not an attack from some, uh, some force that was trying to invade us. You know? So I think we are going to see a reconfiguring of the world order. Now, I'm not an economist. I wish they would come up with answers quickly, God has not said, you know. But certainly the way the way society is changing fast now, it's going to be incredible, isn't it? I think, I think we are going to invent the future in a much more positive way. Climate change is happening because of greed, largely. And it's also happening because we have to keep thinking of it. Now, it is happening. The, the good news is the whole renewables area, 
we will go to nuclear fusion watch you know we are effectively inventing star trek cars <laughs> that's that's what we're doing here in a sense you know so let's speed up the process so they can make sure it comes more quickly than, than we'd ever dreamt of well maybe a last fun question since you've mentioned star trek several times which is your favorite series and why well your favorite oh, captain maybe even your favorite captain who's your favorite captain well my hero in star trek is spock the science officer. My dream would be would would be to be the science officer on the Starship Enterprise, and then Data, of course, in the Next Generation. What a superb character, you know. No. But Spock is the guy, right? I mean, there's the, a hilarious interview if you if you really just have time to kill. Like, there's a hilarious interview on YouTube of the I think it's called the Captain Summit, and oh, it's yeah. Kirk, Picard, and Spock, and um, number two, number one, um, which I always forget his real name. Yeah. Um, but I mean, Will Riker, <laughs> yeah, Will Riker, exactly. But his the, the actor's name, I, I, I can't oh, remember yeah, his yeah, name. Yeah. Um, but it's the four, four of them being uh interviewed by Whoopi, uh, Whoopi Goldberg, yeah. and it's a really funny anecdote that Spock says. He said, Because I've had this image of being like the science officer, knowing everything science, that sometimes when he goes to schools and um, he, he goes and meets people, they yeah. start talking to him in their lingo, just thinking that he, as Spock, he gets it. And he's like, yeah, I'm just like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, no idea. It's just an actor, right? But it's like, he's so, he's such, so good yeah. at living that character. That my, everybody my favorite though, very briefly, because in the next, the next generation is my favorite, by the way, I think overall. Mm. The trouble about the first one is it's a bit clunky, isn't it? And Kirk is a bit like that, you know, I love it. But so there's a great episode where Data uh, falls in love, right? And he downloads every single piece of romantic fiction, all the Shakespeare plays, so he learns about love and he thinks now he knows what to do. He's on a date with his, with his new girlfriend and they're on their like fourth date and he, he picks a fight with her. Like, you know, and she gets all upset. She says, what are you doing? She sa- he says, my algorithm tells me now's our time for our first lover's tip. He says, you know, <laughs> <laughs> so you can't beat it, can you? It's I, I love it. But yeah. I actually, one thing I've always enjoyed, not, now that we're just Star Trek fandom going on here, but one of the things that I've always loved about Star Trek is that it's always tackled a lot of issues earlier than they were actually kind of society could grapple with them. I think they were the first show to have a, a black woman lead yep. as part of the original Star Trek. But not only that, it's like, tackling not only like uh as you mentioned earlier talking about economic challenges but now you know with the new series discovery uh, i don't know if you're watching it on on um on amazon i think it is it, you know it's and and the new picard one i don't know if you've seen no, that I'm one too it. yeah, yeah. it's pretty good and you know you see some, some of the themes like even like how we interface with computers has changed over them yeah and it's just interesting to see kind of if it's true and it has been pretty good about um showcasing future technologies I'm curious to see what the future will bring. Yeah. And with yeah. that... I've always hated uh, fantasy. I, I much prefer... Yeah. You know the science fiction fantasy spectrum? That's yeah. just too stupid. The beauty of Star Trek was it could be it could be true. You, know, you can yeah. imagine yeah. that's going to happen. You know? It is, it is. And, and well, I, I just... I'm so glad that I, I get to chat with you who are probably setting the foundation for the next generation to really be inspired by all this. And clearly, as you can see from David, that's borne out well. And, you know, far more to come in yeah, this Yeah, we area. need you, David. We need you. <laughs> so with that, Professor, thank you so much for joining us on this episode. And David as well. Thank and um, feel free to get in touch. Uh, we'll put some of the details uh, for the Professor and his book on the show notes. Until next time, guys. See you later. Thanks very much.